0: So we begin at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. So from chapters 1 to 11 so far, we've seen Jesus' entire ministry of about three years or so. But for the rest of the gospel, from chapter 12 on, we're going to see a little more than a week. Of time, And so it's going to be really, really focused in at this point. John's picking up the intensity, and he's going to focus on this one week, the week of the Passover, the week leading up to the Passover and then some afterwards. And so we pick up in the text six days before the Passover. So this is a Saturday, because remember, the Passover started Thursday at sunset and carried over into into Friday. And so uh, just a little bit more. Context: Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. So that's heading back into Jerusalem. You know, he's, he's going to be in Bethany for this feat, for this dinner. And then he's going to go into Bethpage. And that's where the triumphal entry happens in the east gate of Jerusalem. And then he's going to go into Jerusalem. And so uh, I know we've mentioned this many times throughout the gospel so far. But Jesus is on a divine timeline here. So because the Jews are right around the corner. Uh, Think about what he says here. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. So that's talking about what was happening before the persecution that was going on. So because the Jews are right around the corner looking for him so that they can arrest him and kill him, Jesus is heading back to where they are. He's heading back into Jerusalem. He's stepping directly into persecution. And so this sheds even more light on what John 10 verse 18 says. No one, Jesus is talking about his life here. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Christ will purposefully point his heading toward Jerusalem, knowing that in about a week's time, he is going to take on God's wrath by suffering a gruesome death on the cross. That's what's going on here. And just as the people are sacrificing their lambs in the Passover ceremony, Christ is going to be hung on the cross as God's ultimate and final sacrifice to redeem mankind. And so that's, that's where he's headed. And so on the way to Jerusalem, he's going to stop in Bethany. And he's going to meet up with some, some close friends, some close people that we've already seen uh, before. And so based on based on some of the other accounts that we see in, in the other Gospels, we're not going to focus too much on, on the other Gospels today, but just to, to kind of uh, bring it in, uh, we, we learned that this dinner is actually being hosted by Simon the leper. And so uh, since lepers were excommunicated and, you know, if like Jesus wouldn't actually, like the, the, all the people of Israel wouldn't actually go to the house of a leper. Lepers were excommunicated. So we, so we know that this guy is actually not a leper anymore, but was probably healed of leprosy. And so there's a good chance that if someone was healed of leprosy, that that was probably Jesus that did that. And so think about, put yourself there. We have the disciples uh, at this dinner. We have the disciples. We have Mary and Martha. We have Lazarus, a man who was literally raised from the dead. We have Simon who was a man healed, probably healed of leprosy by Jesus and then the son of God himself sitting around this table, relaxing and talking over dinner. Like, just put yourself, can you imagine the conversation that's going on at this table and it's all in honor of Jesus. Everything that they're doing is in honor of the Christ. And so the second part of verse two, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we see what's happening at the dinner feast, right? Martha does what's in her nature to do, right? What we've seen already, she serves. And so uh, I have to say this because Martha gets kind of a bad rap the the first time that we see her. In Luke chapter 10. So in Luke chapter 10, Jesus visits Mary and Martha at, at their house, right? And so we see this. Uh, we, we actually went through this in, I believe, our Advent series. Uh, and so he visits Mary and Martha at their house. And starting in verse 38, it says, now, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary She becomes more focused on serving than sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that's the, that's the purpose of, of what was said there in Luke 10. But serving is not inherently a bad thing. Like, I, I don't want you to confuse that. Serving is a good thing. And I thank God that there's people in our church that understand what it means to serve. And so I don't have to stand here and tell you how important it is, how important it is that we serve in the capacities that we're in on a daily basis. I mean, that's why we've installed deacons or servant leaders, right, a few weeks ago to help lead and to show our body tangibly what servanthood should look like and how to actually serve and to actually serve and to care for those in our body and in, in our community. And so servanthood is, a, is an important thing. It's a, it's a thing that's valued in scripture. And so Martha is doing what she does best. She serves. This is her job and this is the way that she is going to glorify Christ in this passage. Mary's going to glorify Christ by, by sitting at his feet and pouring everything out that she has over him. Martha is going to do it by serving. And so praise Jesus for people like Martha in this world. I just want to say that. And so then we see, so we saw Martha, now we see Mary. And Mary and Judas is going to kind of be where this, uh, where this lies more, you know, where we're going to see most of the text from. And so uh, we get to see, again, like, kind of like we've seen over and over in, in the gospel so far, the dividing effect that the ministry and life of Jesus has on people. We've seen people respond in belief, submitting to Christ as their Lord, and recognizing Him as the Messiah and being given life on one hand. And then we've seen some respond by totally rejecting Christ or actually we've seen him respond and being indifferent to him as well, and both of those leading to destruction. So we're going to see both of those pretty clearly in this passage. And so Mary, uh, first of all, we'll talk about Mary. Mary probably recognizing that she has to cherish every minute that she has with Christ up to this point, Uh, takes this perfume, this ointment, uh, it's made of pure nard, and we learn later from Judas, it has a worth of 300, I hope I say this right, 300 denarii. Denari. Uh, and one denarius is about one day's wage. So when we look at this, it's probably about one year's salary, one year's wage. Uh, that's, the, that's, what, that's the value that Judas puts on this pure nard. And so we don't know how she's acquired this or how long it took her to acquire this, but we, we do know one thing. We know that because of the infinite worth that she saw in Jesus, she goes on to pour out this ointment on Christ. And so this account says that she anointed his feet. Mark's account says that she poured it over his head. She, she put it on Jesus. She poured it on Jesus. That's the important part of this. So my point is that she didn't spare any of this that she had. She took the most expensive, the most beautiful thing, probably, that she owned and poured it at the feet of Jesus. She gladly poured it over him. So she not only pours the perfume over him, but then she proceeds to let her hair down and wipe his feet with her hair. So this is something that a woman would not do in the presence of men in this culture. Like in this culture, that's not going to happen. And this is a symbol of Mary just taking the absolute best that she has to offer. Everything valuable that she can get her hands on and literally and symbolically putting it at the feet of Jesus, throwing it at Jesus' feet. She's saying, Jesus, you are pure and you are holy. You're deserving of all that is pure. I'll take this perfume with the beautiful fragrance that it has And wipe it on your feet with the most beautiful and clean thing that I have. That's my hair. I'll I'll take that and do that for you. That's the best I have to give you. Let the cleanest, most pure thing that I have serve to wash your feet. That's, that's That's what we should see from this. You're deserving of that, Jesus. He is deserving of that. This is true worship. This is humble, affectionate, selfless worship without abandon. And it's aimed toward a king that deserves every bit of it. Can you imagine the reaction in the room at this point, like probably some some shock and amazement as to what 's going on like what like what are you what are you doing there and for those who love jesus and who who are in on this who who understand what 's going on here, the opportunity to join in worship of him like we can we can worship Christ at this time and this awesome time of proclaiming him of being the Lord and being the Messiah, so we get to see like You know, I can only imagine that that's what's going on at this time, like this beautiful time of worship, of kind of solitude and and worship. And then we meet Judas. So in verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, it puts that in there, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then John's commentary Next, he he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas interrupts this beautiful time of worship. But he interrupts it with something that sounds pretty noble at first, right? Like, why, why wouldn't you give this to the poor? Could have fed and clothed a lot of poor people with one year's worth of salary. But then John gives us more insight as to what's actually going on. Judas didn't care about the poor at all. This would have been another opportunity that he would have had to do what he's done in the past. To steal the little bit of money that the disciples and Jesus had to sustain themselves. He would steal money from the money bag. They had this money for their ministry and he would take it. So Judas was in this for a position of gain, of power and authority to become wealthy and so at some point, he realizes that Jesus' ministry is going to be much different than he had anticipated, right? He, he realizes that this is going to be something much different. It's not going to be one in which they attain fame and fortune, but one that will require the lives of many of them. And so Jesus lays it out for them pretty clearly, uh, you know, as they're, as he's, walking through ministry with them, as he's walking through life with them, he lays it out pretty clearly in Luke chapter 9. So he's talking to his disciples in verse 18 uh, about what the people think of him, and, or what they say about him. And he says, who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 19, and they answered, John the Baptist, but others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Then he's going to lay it out for him right here. He says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to require. Deny yourself, take up an instrument of torture, take up your cross and follow me. But Judas, Judas hasn't bought into this. As Mary shows her love and affection for Christ, her love of him, Judas clearly reveals what he loves, and that's money. He's in it for money. He wants money. And so what's Jesus' to say in all of this? Let's keep going through the passage. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus is going to rebuke Judas on three three points here. He's going to give him three reasons why he needs to shut his mouth, basically. He's going to say, stop talking, Judas. Leave her alone. What she's doing is a beautiful thing. And because you don't love me and because you don't cherish me, you don't have eyes to see who I really am. Because you don't believe, even after walking with me for three years, seeing the miracle after miracle that I perform, watching me transform people. If you don't believe after that, if you can't see that, you, you need to keep your mouth shut. So first he says, leave her alone, Judas, so, she, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So what, what is he talking about here? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Is he talking about Perfume. I don't think so. Think about it, if Mary broke the jar that she was using and poured it over Jesus, then there, there's none of that left. And plus, Judas' words, Judas speaking, Judas speaking about that wouldn't have kept, wouldn't have kept that, that perfume from Mary. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense. What Jesus is saying here, he says, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Instead, I think Jesus is telling Judas, leave her alone. Don't let her lose that sense of wonder that she has for me. Don't let her fall into your close-sightedness and your greed. Don't let her lose her sense of wonder and and amazement and falling at my feet of who I am. Let's keep her heart where it is now, practicing reverent worship for me. Keep your mouth shut so that she will continue to worship me even after I die on the cross. Let her continue to have faith that allows her to recognize the infinite value of the one that she's given up her valuables to worship. So that's, that's what he's saying here. And so second, he says, for the poor you will always have with you. Leave her alone. The poor you're always going to have with you. Judah, Jesus is saying, Judas, once you're gone, you're going to have all the time in the world that you need to serve the poor if that was really what your motive was. So I encourage you to, to give to the poor and nothing that Mary's going to do is going to stop you from doing that. So Jesus puts much emphasis on caring for the poor throughout his entire ministry, right? Like that's never in question here. The, the issue is definitely not whether to care for the poor or not, but, but this time and this place was, was not the time to do that because Jesus is here. But he knows Jesus knows that Judas' mission is to exalt himself, to bring glory to himself while trying to physically profit off of the ministry of Jesus. He's in it to make money. He's an imposter. He's kept kept up this charade for long enough to where he can convince the people that he's he's walking with, he can convince the disciples that he can still have the money bag. So that's, that's the charade that he's putting on here. He wants the disciples to still believe him. And so he's going to ride this money train to the very end where ultimately Satan is going to enter him and he's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, four months' wage to betray the Savior of the world. And so it's such a tragedy when somebody who lives so closely intertwined with Jesus, who was discipled by Jesus, who Jesus cared for, who lived his life with others around him believing in him when he rejects the Messiah and refuses to bow to him as Lord. That's tragic. But sadly, Judas isn't alone. Like I know many close friends today. It still happens today. And you could probably think of many too who have seen the grace and the mercy that Jesus provides, who understand the implications of what God has done, of being a child of God and what he's done on our behalf who have come face to face with their depravity and with his goodness, but who still reject him and won't submit to him. So I encourage you to continue to engage them, to love them, to pray for them. But the sad truth is that some are going to see his goodness and they're still going to reject him. So that's one and two. The third, Christ says, leave her alone for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. You'll be able to care for the poor at a later time, but the priority and the focus while I'm still here is me. That's Jesus talking. You don't know this because you don't have eyes to see, but Mary's heart is right. Jesus says, I'm still here, so spend time with me now when you still can. He's told them that the time is near when he's going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead, and he reminds them again that at that moment, that that moment is coming when he's not going to be with them physically anymore. So enjoy the time that you have with me. Worship, worship Christ while he's still on this earth. And so this ends that, that scene, right, uh, within the house at the dinner. And I, I think at this time, it would probably be a good time for us to look at some of the, some of the implications of that. And I know this is a pretty, this is a pretty popular text, um, so maybe, maybe as we were going through the text, you were, you were thinking about some things maybe personally in your life that, that would apply to this. And, and that maybe that you can submit to God and, uh, you know, certain things in your life uh, that you can apply. But I just wanted to share a few that kind of, that kind of stood out to me. Uh, as I was driving to Baton Rouge, Heather had, a, Heather had an exam this weekend, and so I was able to just kind of meditate on the Scripture as I was, as I was driving over there. And uh, I drew three major implications out of the text. And uh, hopefully th- these are beneficial to you as well. Uh, number one, our generosity, namely how we care for the least of these, should always overflow from our worship of Christ and our understanding of what He's done. For us, what he's done on our behalf and who he is. And so we can't effectively extend compassion toward our neighbors in word or in deed until we realize that the spiritually broken state that Christ has brought us out of, right? We can't, we can't possibly go to our neighbors and proclaim the good news of Christ without knowing that He's brought us from deadness into life, right? And so He's the one that gives us the ability to serve with joyfulness. I mean, it's crazy to think if I'm going to care for my neighbors in the way that Christ called me without proper worship of him. And apart from Christ, I think think personally the question that I would be asking instead of how can I care for those is what's in it for me. That's that's my selfish desire. That's my heart that says what's in it for me. If I do this, what what am I going to benefit from it? What am I going to gain from it? So we are gracious only because he is gracious. We are sacrificial only because he is sacrificial. And 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. That's the only way that this happens. But we go through seasons where we forget about this, right? What started out as a way of magnifying Christ in our neighborhoods has become more of a chore, has become more of a, maybe turned into something that doesn't produce as much joy that you almost feel obligated to do. And I'm not talking about things necessarily that are tough. You know, some things are just tough and you'll have to deal with them and just kind of get through them. But some things, you know, we just lose sight of the purpose behind the things that we're doing. We lose sight of of purpose of why, why we're actually doing those things. And so when we were walking through our Advent series this past Christmas, Blake took a Sunday and kind of encouraged us to think about the motivation for the things that we're doing and to be encourage us to like, you know, if we're not, if we're not doing these things with the motivation of the glory of Christ, then bow out, you know, get out of these things. If we're not glorifying Christ, I would encourage you to consider that again, to to get out of whatever, whatever you're doing until, until your motives are correct. And so if I can be real with you for, for just a few minutes, um, well, I want to be real with you the whole time. But if I can be real with you right now, um, I've struggled with this lately. Uh, some, of us, uh, some of us in this room work with work with students through our uh through the GED program at, at SC3. And it's it's been a really awesome and beneficial program for uh for the people that are in it. But last so last year we started out doing that, right? Uh and it was it was so awesome. We got to see a lot of people growing in, you know, mathematics and science and uh, and all of the all the things that we're they were working on in there. We got to see them uh, you know, learning a lot of material and able to pass some of their GED classes and pass some of their tests and things like that. And so we were able to we were able to see a lot of growth and a lot of a lot of stu- a lot of good stuff in that first year. And at that point I was I was teaching math and uh, Adam and I actually got to Got to see one of our students graduate, uh, one of the students that we had worked with uh, individually. We got to see her graduate with her GED and actually improve, uh, you know, improve her job situation. And, and man, it was just such a it was such a joy to be able to do that. It was such an awesome experience for us. But then this year rolls around, and we've had some, you know, we've had some frustrations. Instead of teaching math. The day that the day that Heather and I chose was English Day. I am not a fan of English, nor can I teach English very well. So, this was this was something that that really struck me. Like I, I'm a I'm a math guy, not a Josh Blunt and Becca Bennett math guy, but just kind of on the on the lower level math I can teach that. Uh, and so that's what I enjoy. That's what I love. And this year has been nothing but English for me. And so that was. That was kind of tough uh, to swallow. And then there have been some other frustrations that I won't go into detail about. But over the last few months, what I've seen is I've served, I've tried to serve in my power and in my strength and in my abilities. And so instead of showing and proclaiming the love of Christ and, and doing it based on what he has done on my behalf, I've tried to do it based on who I am and based on myself. And so even though we've had some amazing relationships in the past couple of months and we've developed some, some awesome relationships with some students, uh, I've, I've really been dreading going, going to those classes. I've really been like, it's, it's, it's been everything in my own power to go. And so what I'm saying now is that if you're, if you're in that situation with me, uh, I pray that, that you would ask God to, to examine your motives. That, and that you would examine your own motives and be able to uh, be able to say without a doubt that when you're doing something and serving that it it is for the glory of christ and that's what i've been praying uh you know through this through this text and and just kind of this week about God uh, realigning my heart to that and realigning my heart allowing me to be able to see uh, to see his truth and that pushing me forward in this tutoring program so uh so that's number 1. Number 2, when we see the way in which Mary worships and the way that she adores Christ. She has a sense of wonder. How do we in comparison sometimes sell ourselves short in regard to worship of Christ? As the church in America, like we're we're pretty good at playing games, right? Like we like we like to play games instead of actually worship. So what what is worship? if we were to ask somebody, like, what is worship? Well, it's a a time that we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we sing songs, and we hear the word of God. Well, that's great. That's corporate worship. That's a beautiful portion of worship that is absolutely essential to the body, and it's beneficial for all of us, but that's not all that's on the table, right? That's not everything that's on the table. That's not all he requires of us. In Romans 12, uh, Paul has spent 11 chapters sharing who God is and what he's done on our behalf, the works of God. And then he says, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how do we worship him? In view of his mercy, in view of his character, in view of who he is, in the goodness that we see from him and all that he's done, and in who he is, we offer everything that we have to him in worship. And if you've forgotten, uh, a few weeks ago, David did a great job going through all of the things that we have in Christ, all of the things that he, that he has provided through us, just through the book of John. And so just as Mary recognized his infinite worth and threw herself at his feet, just as she did that, we should be amazed at what he's done for us and worship him in the same way. And that's with all that's in us, with all that's within us. And so Ephesians 2 helps to remind us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. He raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might see the riches of his kindness expressed to us in Christ. We've been saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God alone. So praise be to God from whom all blessings flow, right? He's given us freedom to do the tough things in life, to live sacrificially, To hold our neighbors in higher regard than we hold ourselves. To have a blank check mentality where we say, God, it's yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. Tell me what to do with my life, and I'm doing it. To proclaim the gospel in light of persecution. To demonstrate the gospel tangibly to our neighborhoods and to the nations through community. And to read and study the Bible with the purpose of knowing and honoring the name of Jesus. We have been freed. We've been set free to do that. So let's encourage one another to embrace this freedom and to walk with Christ through this. So that's two. Three, in view of Judas, what we see from Judas here, how does our love of money affect how we worship Christ and how how we glorify him? We've got to address it here. That's That's a main concern in this passage. We probably don't have to think about this very long. We love money. We love money. And as believers in Christ, if you don't think that you love money, I want to ask you to search your heart and to make sure. Because as I was reading through this passage this week, I just, I started to consider what money was to me. Like what what value do I place on that? And even though I would say that I don't love money, maybe I'm just hiding my affection for it in different words under another name. Maybe I wouldn't say that I love money, but instead I hide my affections in the name of security and comfort. Like, that's a, that's a big deal. We don't want to say that we love money, but we want security. We want comfort. We want to be comfortable. It's the same thing. We have to be really careful. I don't believe that it's evil to save and to steward our money, but when our goals are set solely on comfortability and security, then we need to reconsider. There's something, there's something wrong here. That's, that's our hearts being evil. And so this is a heart issue, right? Judas's heart is evil. As other disciples fell more and more in love with Christ, his heart fell further and further into deceit. He's the one that's going to, be, that's going to betray Christ. It's going to show, his heart is going to show itself wicked through the love of money. And so I plead with you, take this seriously. This is serious. Ask God to bury that evil part of us that wants to come up and that wants to love money over, over him. And so God, in your graciousness, would you allow us to resist the temptation to cherish money over Christ? Allow us to resist that. Our money can be used as a means to point others to Christ and to push back darkness, or it can be used as a means to glorify ourselves. And you know that. And so I say this out of the understanding of how real this is me, and how much I have to ask God to guard my heart when money starts to, starts to talk louder, when money starts to be a serious issue. Once we die, we're not going to have a penny to our name. The kingdom of God is forever. Christ is infinitely more valuable than any money, than anything money could ever buy, and than any money. And I, I pray that as we continue to see what Christ has done on our behalf, that that would become a reality to us. Because that's, that's the difficult part. We can say it. It's, it's not difficult to say. It's, it's got to get into our hearts. <laughs> and so as we wrap it up this week, John is, uh, there's a few more verses left. John's going to bring to focus. He's going to bring the focus from inside of the house to outside of the house of Simon the leper. Uh, to two other groups of people. And that's, this is going to kind of lead into next week's sermon a, as we go to the triumphal entry. So in verse 9, it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we have two groups, right? Number one, the crowd that comes in to see not only Jesus, but Lazarus too, and we have the chief priests. And so we've seen Mary and Judas's response to Jesus, but now we're going to see this kind of indifference almost coming from the crowds. Uh, They just want to see the miracles, right? We've seen this throughout. They want to see the miracles going on. They want to see the things that that Jesus is doing. They want to talk to a man that was dead, I'm sure, previously. I would want to. Um, So they're along to see what Jesus is going to do next, right? And so we'll get more into this next week, but these are the people who are going to gather up palm branches and are going to meet Jesus with the words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then in a matter of less than a week, they'll be shouting, crucify him. And so we're going to see that these Jews are still along for the show. They're along to see what Jesus is going to do. And so then we have the chief priests. These are the guys that can't deny that Jesus has done all of these miracles. They can't deny what he's doing. So they do what they can do. They're going to try to destroy the evidence. And then I thought this was pretty interesting. I mean, seriously, they're like, they're wanting to put a guy to death who has already died and been raised from the grave. That's uh, when I was reading through that this week, I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. But anyway, he's, he's already been raised from the grave and you're trying to put him into anyway. So this is just pure ridiculousness and pure hatred for Christ. And so we're only going to see this escalate as we go throughout the rest of John. And so I want to plead with you today that the life of Jesus that you see in the gospel, it requires response. And so I'm praying that you would respond in belief to the gospel. That you would see what Christ has done for us, how he's laid down his life and become the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. What he has done. And that you would see his infinite worth in the way that Mary did. And that we would live our lives to glorify him completely. That we would lay down everything that we have and say, Christ, it's yours. Because he's worth it. And he's worthy, he is absolutely worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you that you've allowed me to preach the gospel today, but Lord, I also thank you for the for the convicting nature of these words. Lord, that that in your holiness and in your graciousness and in your beauty, that you allow me to see my depravity, my inability. my love for money. My false motives in serving you, God. So, Lord, I pray that, that as we look at these things, that you would continue to conform our hearts to yours, that we would be like Mary, that we would pour everything out that we have because you are worth it. God, that we would, that we would lay everything that we have at your feet and say, Lord, do with it what you please. Father, please align our hearts with yours. Allow us to be able to see what what you want us to do. God, I, I thank you so much that we get to see the Christ take on the wrath of all mankind in order to glorify You and to save us, Father. Lord, I pray that that would be the central focus of all of our worship. That our worship wouldn't end here when we leave on a Sunday afternoon, but that, Lord, we would worship You throughout the week. That every day we would conform to Your Spirit and that Your Spirit would be, would allow us to be transformed God, as we read your word and as we study your scriptures, Lord, that, that, that we would be convicted in the ways that we're wrong. And God, that, that just as we've seen through the through the book of John, that that you would that you would lead us back to a right relationship with Christ. And God, we pray that, that in all of this, that our motivation would be solely Him. God, we love You and we thank You and we pray that this time of worship would be pleasing to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.